In, uh, in Jesus' ministry, there was that night where a man named Nicodemus came to him. And Nicodemus was the teacher of all of Israel, so he came to Jesus at nighttime probably to protect his own reputation. He couldn't go around in the middle of the day asking Rabbi Jesus Bible questions. He was supposed to be the teacher. He was supposed to have the answers. So he came to Jesus at nighttime. And he told Jesus, he said, you know, we've been watching you, and we've made this determination about you. We've discovered that you must be from God to teach us something because we can't deny all the miracles that you're performing. You know, so you must come from God. So it was kind of Nicodemus saying to Jesus, you know, we've, we've kind of been looking around, and obviously, you know, me and my crew, we're, we're in the know about things. And we made a decision. You must be from God, so what, what's your angle? What's the thing that you want us to know about? What's, what's like the, the little facet that you're going to bring that we don't already have? So Jesus had to really get Nicodemus into the right place. So he said, Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was Jesus' answer. It, 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 was a, it was an answer designed to put, to put Nicodemus on his heels a little bit. It was an answer designed not to, not to really, I'd say rebuke would be too strong of a word, but just to kind of challenge this mentality that Nicodemus had already seen the kingdom of God. Jesus is kind of saying to him, like, you don't see it. You're making a determination about me, but you don't see it. You, you think that you, you know everything, but you don't even see the kingdom of God. You have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus kind of pushed back a little bit. How can a man be born again? You know, Obviously, he can't climb back into his mother's womb and be born a second time. So how can a person be born again? Jesus went on. He, he pressed it even further. Said the same thing, but with slightly different words. He said, but you have to be born of the Spirit of water and born of the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And then he taught Nicodemus about how that takes place. You know, that you must believe in the son that the father has sent. But there's this kingdom is what I'm trying to get at. There's this kingdom that when you're born again, when you receive Christ into your life and into your heart, when you believe in what he did for you upon the cross, that he died for the sin of the world, that he died for you individually, personally, and that he was put in the ground, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he's going to return. When you believe that, when you believe that he substituted himself for you, when you place your confidence, you say, I want to be made right with God by the work of Jesus Christ, and I am leaning upon that. I am trusting him for that. When that takes place, legitimately, that saving faith leads to you being born again, me being born again. Something actually happens is what I'm driving at. Uh, it's not just what Jesus did, kind of a fact of history. It's that belief in that fact of history does something to you today. It causes us to be born again, born of, of the Spirit. And because of that, we can see his kingdom, we can enter into his kingdom, both in the future, but even right now. We can, we can live out his kingdom right now. So I'm, I'm making a big deal about that because David right now, we're in a passage in his life where he is expanding his kingdom. That's what he's doing. He's expanding his kingdom. He's, he's, he's become the king of Israel. He's 
figured out what the capital city is going to be, Jerusalem. He's taken Jerusalem. He's put, put the ark in Jerusalem, established a worship of God in Jerusalem, but he still needs to expand the kingdom. You see, when Saul was king, if you, if you look at the borders that God had designed for the people of Israel, God had told Abraham that he would one day give them the land from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates. But if you look at the land that Saul was king over, it was just a small little pocket inside of that larger territory. For a long time, they had not been living in the fullness of what God had set aside for them. And because of that, they were really, in a lot of ways, an endangered people. And of course, because we know redemptive history, we know that it's very bad for the people of Israel to be an endangered people, especially when they had not yet produced the Messiah, the Savior Jesus, that would save uh, the world from their sins. So David comes onto the scene, and he is going to expand the territory. That's what he's going to do. So we're going to take a look at that. And he's going to do that by warring. So we're going to look at that a little bit. And there are going to be some things, I'll be honest with you, that are uncomfortable to us as we read these different synopses of the wars of David. Uh, you have to remember as you read these things that David was a man of God, but he was also a product of his time. He was a product of his time. I, I think it's going to be shocking to us when we meet the Lord face to face to have the lights go on about things that we thought were normal and okay for us to do. <laughs> But we only thought that because of the culture and the society that we're, we were living in. And then when we stand before a holy and righteous God, we realize, wow, I can't believe that I lived like that in light of who he is. And there are going to be some things that were just normative in David's day, but that are going to be a little awkward for us because we live in a different culture and era. But we're going to see those in, in the battles. Not to mention that many of these people had been marked out by God for judgment. So David was an instrument in the hand of God for judgment. Okay, but I digress. I'm telling you what's going to happen before it happens. And then he's going to build his team. And then we're going to see his treatment of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. So we're going to just going to kind of see like the war that you know takes place in the kingdom, the team that's invited into leading the kingdom, and also just kind of the atmosphere of the kingdom in the way that David treats uh, Mephibosheth. And these are lessons that I think are timeless for us uh, today. So let's start out reading uh, about the goal of the kingdom for David, which is also a goal that the Lord has for us today, to subdue uh, the enemy. You see, the Lord in your life, you know, there are certain things that the Lord is trying to subdue. He's trying to you know, give you victory. And so David got it over six people groups, six nations, uh, but the Lord wants to give it to us over, you know, desires of the flesh and, and different tendencies that might be in our hearts. So let's just read uh, these first 14 verses the, and, and see each group that David battled against. Again, I don't think that you're meant to think that this happened like in 20 days, you know, this is just like, like I said, a synopsis of all these. It's kind of a transitional moment in this book where it's like, okay, there was this group, this group, this group, this group. Some of them attacked David, some of them David attacked. Uh, but it's just kind of a, 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 you know, story about these six. So number one, were the Philistines. Verse one, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amma 
out of the hand of the Philistines. We don't know much about Methag Amma. It seems to be an unknown city, but may have been strategic like many of these other places that David took. And number two, in verse two, were the Moabites. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Number three were the Zobahites. It says in verse three, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. It's actually interesting. He disabled the horses. You see, the law had said that kings should not multiply horses and chariots for themselves. And so this might have been a way in which David was saying, I'm not trusting in my military strength or in the large power of my military might. I'm going to keep my military small on purpose so that I can trust in the living God. And actually later in David's life, he would begin to trust his military strength and the Lord would judge him for it. So this seems to be humility in David's heart, not to, uh, to kind of refuse like the, the best modern military weapon of his era, the chariot. He says, I'm only going to take 100 horses and 100 chariots. Uh, number five, the, or, uh, number four, the Syrians. In verse five, it says, and when the Syrians of Damascus came to help, Hadadezer, king of Zilba, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and Barathai, cities of Hadadezer, king David took very much bronze. So he's, God gives him victory, and he's just gaining all of this stuff, gold, silver, bronze. Then in verse 9, when Toy, king of Hamath, so now you have the Hamathites, a fifth group, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him for Hadadezer. How many times is this guy's name is in this passage? Hadadezer had often been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. So Toy is no dummy. He looks around and he just sees like systematically David is just winning, 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 winning. Nobody can defeat him. You know, the hand of the Lord is on him. Nobody can defeat him. People try to attack him. They can't win. The Jebusites talk trash in Jerusalem. They can't win. Goliath talks trash out in the uh, valley. He can't win. Nobody can beat David. So Toy, he kind of gets with the program, and he's like, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son with all this gold and silver and bronze. I'm going to send him to David. I'm going to have him ask about his health, kind of kiss up a little bit. Like, hey, we like you. We're friends. And to secure your friendship, here's all this money. We'll just keep paying you money to be our friends. So they just kind of immediately began to pay tribute. So uh, David didn't have to defeat them. They just submitted to David and the reign of Israel. These also, verse 11, King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hated Dezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Notice there what David does in verse 11 and 12. He takes the gifts that 
toy had given to him, and he gives them to the Lord. And it tells us in verse 11 that he, it says, these also uh, he gave with all the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations he subdued. So his practice is another thing that's so cool about David in the midst of this victory, all these victories, his practice was not to take it for himself, which he would have done if he thought that he was the one that should be credited for the victory. But instead of taking it for himself, he apparently believed that the victory had not come from himself, but had come from God, so he dedicated it to the Lord. All this gold and silver and bronze, it would all be used by David's son Solomon to build the temple. So David is very humble here in giving this all to the Lord. He's giving credit where credit is due. Now the sixth enemy is in verse 13, the Edomites. It says, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. It was kind of a legendary victory that David won there. There's a lot of different talk about it in different chapters of the life of David. And it says then, verse 14, he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons. And all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Actually, in response to the victory over the Edomites, like I said, it was, a, it was a, like a landmark victory. David's name became great because of that final victory. And it's interesting, David wrote a song. He wrote Psalm 60 after that victory. Here's how that song ends, Psalm 60, verse 11 and 12. Let, let me ask you, have you ever met somebody who just had like an unbroken line of success in their life? And have you ever noticed that sometimes people that are very successful, there comes a point where they just start getting really big-headed about it? Isn't it refreshing when you see someone who's humble in the midst of a line of unbroken success? This is what David had. He did not take credit. This is how he prayed to the Lord in Psalm 60, verse 11 and 12. He said, God, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So even after a huge victory, he's like, that wasn't me. <laughs> that was God. That was the Lord that won that great victory for us. All right, now, I think a simple takeaway from all of these battles, you know, this synopsis of all these, these battles, I think a simple takeaway would just be to go back and to remember like I mentioned a few minutes ago, the promise that God had made to Abraham. God had said to Abraham, I'm going to give to your descendants the, all this land from the Nile River all the way to the Euphrates. I'm going to give it to you. Now let me ask you guys, did Abraham ever receive that from the Lord? The answer is no, he didn't receive that. He bought, a, he bought a cave and a field to bury his wife Sarah in inside the promised land, but he never personally received that promise of God. He died. His son Isaac received the promise. Then Isaac's son Jacob received the promise. And then Jacob had 12 sons, and they were recipients of the promise. And then they moved, not into the promised land, but away from the promised land because of a drought, a famine. They moved to Egypt. They lived in the land of Goshen. Everything was like cool for a little while. But then Joseph died, and the pharaohs forgot Joseph, and pretty soon after a few hundred years, uh, they found themselves enslaved. And for 400 years, they lived as a people group inside of Egypt, not recipients of the promised land. And after 400 plus years, 
of living there, and after years of brutal slavery, they cried out to the God of Abraham. Centuries earlier, their, their, their ancestor, Abraham, they cried out to him, send us a deliverer. Moses came, the plagues, all of that, and they were delivered 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because Moses was representative of the law, and the law can't take you into the promised land. And so Moses had to die. Joshua, the Savior, he rose up, and he took the people into the promised land. You remember Joshua? They won. They were in the promised land. They're they're getting the territory. They didn't get the whole Nile to the Euphrates thing yet, but they were on their way towards that. And at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua looks at everybody and he's, he basically like has this speech where he's like, look, I'm not so sure whether you guys are going to walk with God, but I know me and my house, we will walk with the Lord. And then he lives a few more years and he dies. And so it's kind of like this decision, like we've taken some of this Nile to Euphrates land. We've taken some of it, but there's still a lot left. And I'm going to die, Joshua is saying, and it's up to you. Are you going to take it? He dies, and the book of Judges unfolds. It's a period of 400 plus years where it's just an over and over again cycle of sin, and it's obvious, oh, they're not going to take it. The territory is going to decrease rather than increase. What this all is for us in our era is a picture of the Christian life. You see, when you come to Christ, there are things that the Lord has cut out for you, that he has promised for you, things that he wants to produce in your life. Uh, But we've got to walk into them. And what David seems to be doing is saying to himself, I'm going to pick up where Joshua left off. You know, Joshua was going in, taking the land. I'm going to do that same thing. I'm going to pick up right where he left off, and I'm going to try to get that Nile River all the way to the Euphrates territory of land for the people of Israel again. When they attack us, I'll fight back, and I'm going to try to get what the Lord desires for us. You see, this might be just a simple reminder for us as believers that if we're going to really experience God working in our life, we have to remember that there is going to be a war, a battle, a fight to really experience everything that the Lord wants us to experience in this life. I'll remind you, Of Galatians 5, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, but I say, walk in the Spirit. By the way, how's that for an exhortation? This is just what he says. He says, this is what I want you to do. Walk in the Spirit. Do you know how to do that? How to walk in the Spirit. How to feed the Spirit. How to think on the things of the Spirit. How to read the Word of God and allow the Spirit to instruct you. How to have a conversation with another believer where you're tuned in to the Spirit. How to spend your time not just feasting on neutral or negative things, but to feast on that which is of the Spirit. How to set a conversation around the realm of the Spirit, the things of the Spirit of God. He said, I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you don't have to concentrate on not doing the things of the flesh as much as just walking in the Spirit. For, this is what he says, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. 
For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Look, every single one of us, this is the thing, this is the thing that cracks me up about Christians so often. Every single one of us, the Bible says it right there in black and white. The Bible says it that when we're born again, there's this battle that's happening inside of us. There's the spirit that we've received from the Lord. And that spirit wants to do the right things, wants to do the good things, wants to produce the right stuff inside of us. And then there's this remnant of the old nature called the flesh. It's the body of sin. It likes to sin. It likes to slack off. It likes to get in trouble. It likes all that stuff. And the Bible just says it there in black and white. There is this battle, spirit, flesh. That's what's happening, right? It's just right there for all of us. Are there any people in this room that are believers that this is not a description of their lives? The answer is no, that's all of us. But here's the thing that we do. We walk around acting like we're the one person that that does not describe. You know, we are all spirit. <laughs> we try to put that vibe out there. Like, you know, I just, all I, all I wanna, I just wanna pray and be with the Lord and love the brethren, you know, or something like that, when the reality is, no, there are these fleshly desires within. Or, here's another thing we do. We take the desires of the flesh, and we relabel them. And say, no, those aren't fleshly desires. That's just, you know, that's just human, you know, kind of stuff. But there's this battle that is happening. There's this war that is taking place inside of us. I want to list to you six enemies I think the Lord wants to give you victory over and me victory over. Why six? Well, David had six <laughs> enemies here, so I figured that's a good number. Number one, guilt. The Lord wants to deal with guilt in your life. He deals with it at the cross when you're first saved, but he wants to continue to deal with that guilt. He separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. He's trying to give you a sense of innocence. He also wants to deal, number two, with shame. Shame is different than guilt because guilt can be acquired through things that you have done, whereas shame can be acquired through things that you've done, things that have been done to you, and things that you have witnessed just by walking here on earth. The Lord wants to deal with your shame. He wants to deal, number three, with insecurity. You see, insecurity leads people to do all kinds of things, compromising their walk with the Lord, compromising their integrity, becoming jealous, backbiting, envious people. The Lord wants to deal with your insecurity by helping you be secure with who you are in Christ Jesus. You're, you're loved by the most important figure that ever has existed in God the Father. He wants to deal, number four, with fear. To enable you to be a person who is bold, who trusts the Lord. He wants to deal, number five, with despair. You know what despair is? It's that sense of hopelessness, that thing that causes you to say, I have no hope for tomorrow in this situation. And he also wants to deal, number six, with defilement. Defilement is different than guilt and shame in that it's not just a sense that we have about ourselves, but something that we've actually done to ourselves or has been done to us that has sort of broken something inside of us. And Jesus desires to deal with that defilement. So, the war that David was in, I think it reminds us of the war that the Lord wants to enter into in our own lives. Okay, the second section that we're going to look at here is verse 15 to 18. It's real short, just a little paragraph describing David's team. And this helps us see something that's needed in the kingdom. A team is needed in the kingdom. 
Now, you might remember that when the people of Israel came to Samuel years earlier and said, we want a king, remember, they didn't have a king all the time. For a long time, they had no king. They had priests, they had prophets. But eventually, they came to Samuel. They said, we want to be like everybody else. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's usually a bad idea for the people of God to say, we want to be just like the world. That's what they wanted. They wanted a king like everybody else, a king who would fight their battles and give them justice and equity. That's what they wanted. So it says in verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And here's his team. Joab, the son of Zariah, that's his nephew, he was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. So he kind of got the government bureaucracy going. So he was like over the DMV and stuff like that. And Zadok, verse 17, the son of Ahitub and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary, perhaps even secretary of state. And this is an interesting guy, verse 18, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he eventually actually replaced Joab. But he was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. We don't know a lot about those guys, but it seems that what they were were Cretan and Philistine uh, converts who were mercenaries for David. So you might think of them as not just military, but maybe as a special forces within the military. Benaiah was in charge of them. And then, and David's sons were priests. Now, David was from the tribe of Judah, so obviously his sons were as well. So the the tribe of Judah was not qualified to serve as priests. The book of First Chronicles tells us that they were chief officials. So it might be that what was happening here is that these sons of David were in charge of the priests. Like, hey, just kind of a way to like keep the priests going. Like keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Keep working, keep serving the Lord. Here, what do you need to help the sacrifices happen? And so his sons were uh, in charge of that, but not actually going into the, t- to the uh, tabernacle and offering sacrifices uh, and all of that. So David had this team. Actually, there's other passages that tell us other people that he had on this team. You know, here we see he had like uh, military leaders, politicians, priests. Other lists that we get show us that he had like agricultural leaders. He had one person that was in charge of all of the crops, one person that was in charge of all of the flocks in all of Israel, kind of developing agricultural uh, stuff. And then he had counselors that served as, you know, kind of lawyers for him, gave him advice on how to operate in the kingdom. Uh, One office that he had was occupied by a guy named Hushai. Hushai was the king's friend. That was like everything. There was like this list. It lists all these different people and Hushai, the king's friend. So I don't know what that was. It was like after a long day of counselors and agricultural leaders, when David was like, I just want some nachos and play darts for a little bit. Hushai came over. He's like, okay, it's my job. I'm going to be your friend. You know, so that was the, that was the thing. There's just this team, this team of people that served uh, David, you know, in developing the kingdom. Look, I think this reminds us of the kingdom of Christ because what the Bible teaches is that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, uh, he became the head of a new organism called the church. 
It's different than Israel, different than anything that had ever existed. He became the head of a new organism called the church. And the church became his body. And in that body, there are all these different members, these different parts, just like in a human body, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just like in a human body, there are all these different members, all these different parts, all these different roles to play, so to speak, different gifts, different ministries, different styles of ministry, different focuses of ministry. Uh, All of that is found inside the body of Christ. You see, the Lord has a call upon each one of our lives. I, I think that a mature believer should be able to, or at least shoot for being able to, kind of drive towards, work towards being able to answer the question, what is my ministry? What is my ministry? I say that with a little hesitation because I know that there are times where a person is real new in Christ or they've gone through a real deep tragedy and they need just to recover and ministry kind of serving the Lord, you know, being used by him, it kind of needs to be set on the back burner for a little while so that the Lord can minister to them. But in general, I think it'd be good for us to be able to answer that question. Like, what has the Lord gifted you for? What has the Lord designed you for? What does the Lord want to do in and through your life? And when I say that, I don't want you to get like too small of a view of that because I've kind of lived through that before where the idea is, well, what is my ministry? Well, I need to create a ministry inside of the church community that I'm in. And then what you end up having is like 75 ministries for the same 75 people that will go to 75 ministries, you know, and it's just like a holy huddle over and over and over again. Look, there's ministry in your workplace. There's ministry in your home. There's ministry in in our community. There's people that the Lord wants you to disciple or mentor or reach out to. There's ministry to non-believers. There's ministry to believers. There's ministry in other nations. There's missions opportunities that no one will ever be able to know about that you're just operating in. There's all kinds of Ministries. There's ministries of being a parent, being a father, being a mother. There's ministries of being a friend to someone who points them to Christ. Again, all of these are sanctified things, but there's ministry all over the place. We just have a lens to see it. So I don't want you to get too narrow of a view, but a broader view of the way that the Lord wants to work through your life. But this to me speaks of, of an invitation of being part of Jesus's team you know, coming into his program here on earth. All right, let's move on to the last section in uh, chapter nine. And before I read this, I just want to give you a little reminder. Let me ask you the question, who was David's best friend? You guys remember his best friend? Jonathan, right? And at this point in David's life, Jonathan is dead. Uh, Saul and Jonathan both died on the battlefield. And I'll just remind you of this. There was a point in their lives when they had to kind of split from each other where David told Jonathan, your dad wants to kill me. Remember that? And Jonathan said to David, that's not true. My dad would tell me. And David said, well, I have my doubts about that. I think your dad knows that we're friends, so that's why he hasn't told you. So they concocted this whole plan 
David would miss a new moon festival meal. Jonathan wouldn't, and, they, and David would hide in the field. So Jonathan went in, ate the meal. The first night, Saul didn't say anything. Second night, Saul asked, hey, where's David, the son of Jesse? Jonathan covered for him. Oh, well, he's with his family. He wasn't. He was hiding in the field, but that's what they said. That was the cover story. And so Saul grew enraged, took out a spear, and threw it at Jonathan. And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 20, then Jonathan knew. <laughs> that was like the big epiphany moment for him. Like, oh, that wasn't meant for me. You actually were planning on killing my friend, David. And so Jonathan grew angry, defended David. Then he went out into the field. They had this secret code with arrows and stuff to, to indicate whether David was safe or in danger. He gave the code to say, you're, you're in danger. And then they kind of risked it all, and they had one last meeting. They weren't supposed to. That wasn't the plan. It was just going to be that David ran. But they had one last meeting together. And in that meeting, Jonathan said to David, make a promise with me. Make a, make a covenant with me. And what was the covenant? Well, it says this in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15. He said, when I die, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. David said yes to that. It, it, what he was saying was, I'll find your descendants and I'll care for them. I'll love your offspring. Now, when Jonathan and Saul died, we already read about this earlier in 2 Samuel, uh, Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was five years old. And his nurse, hearing the news that, her, that Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan, and granddad, Saul, died in battle, feared for Mephibosheth's life. She thought David's going to kill him. So she fled, and in their flight, there was some kind of accident, and Mephibosheth got hurt in his feet. He became injured. And in a different kind of medical era, he wasn't able to be uh, healed because there, there was just no procedure for that. So now we're years later. Mephibosheth is a grown man, a young man, but a grown man. And he's still injured. And so that's kind of the backdrop to this next story. So let's read in verse 1. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? I was uh, reading one scholar who said that David was you know, the way he said it, like nobody knew that he wanted to do something good for the guy. But over and over again, he's going to say, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant, verse 2, of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, verse 3, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kind, the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan he is crippled in his feet. And I already told you that background or that story. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. That's a place about five miles uh, to the east of the Jordan River. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, which was another way of talking about 
his grandfather. That's the way they do it in that era. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Very David-like response from Mephibosheth. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So all these people, 15 sons, 20 servants, they all became Mephibosheth's staff, like that, because of the command of David. Then Ziba said to the king, verse 11, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. He might have had him at this point. This also might be a record of the son that he had later. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is one of my favorite stories in the life of David because it reminds me of my relationship with Jesus Christ every time. Because I don't see David, I don't see myself in David in this story. I see myself in Mephibosheth in this story. You see, imagine what it was like to be Mephibosheth. He injured himself. He, he was injured running away from David. Everybody in his life told him, you can't be seen by David. You can't live near David. You can't interact with David. He'll kill you. And every day, as he dealt with his disability, his injury, it would enter into his mind. Why am I like this? Well, I'm like this because of David. I'm like this because of the way that David is. He may have even said to himself, you know, I'd rather be like this alive, you know, thank you for helping me flee. I'd, I'd rather be injured and alive than have gone alive to David and be killed by that man. They had this perception of David, this thought about David. So then he gets word one day as he's just chilling in Lo Debar on the other side of the Jordan River. He gets this message, hey, David's asking for you. How terrifying, you know, for 15, 20 years, He's been in hiding. He hears how David knows I exist, number one, and he's calling for me, number two. So he's like, well, what, what, what do I, I have no option here. So he goes to David, and it's almost like he's practiced this in his mind for a lot of years. Like, if I ever get discovered and I have to be brought to David, then this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to fall on my face. I'm just going to say, I'm your servant. I'll be a slave to you. I'm your servant. And he gets there. David's like, Mephibosheth, he does the whole thing. He's like, here's the routine. I practiced it. Falls down. I'm your servant. And David's like, hey, I'm going to give you all the land that belonged to your grandpa, Saul. I'm going to give it all to you. And I'm going to give you Ziba, all his sons. And by the way, he had a lot of sons, don't you think? I'm going to give you Ziba, all his sons, all their servants, and they're going to work your land for you. But you're not even going to eat that bread. That'll just be for your household. But you, individually, you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. I'm going to bring you into my home, into my family. I mean, this was just like, what? 
Everything he thought about David was a lie. Everything he believed about David was totally backwards. And what's happening in this moment is that grace is overwhelming his life and his brain about David is being rewired. This is what the cross of Jesus Christ does, is supposed to do to you and to me in our relationship with God. I was recently reminded by a teacher in a teaching I was listening to about the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. What I mean by that is throughout the Bible, the Bible quotes itself a lot. Like for instance, you read the book of Matthew, there's a bunch of quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. It's one of the ways we know that it was written to a Jewish mentality and mindset because so many of them are very Jewish scriptures that are being quoted and then not really like explained for the Gentile mind. We have to go back and do that ourselves. But there's all these quotations of the Bible in the Bible. And this teacher I was listening to, he reminded me of the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. Do you know what it is? It's Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. This is where the Lord describes himself to Moses. When Moses wanted to know, who are you? Can I see you? Covers him in the cleft of the rock. And as he passes by, the Lord said, the Lord, the Lord God, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the verse that is quoted in the Bible more than any other verse. You see, this is, this is what the Lord wants us to know about himself. And the cross of Jesus Christ is designed to show us that God. But how many of us recognize what we really need is we need for our perceptions about God to be rewired. Look, part of the reason that I know I can say this with confidence is because so many believers are terrified. They're, they're already believers. They know the Lord. They've accepted the gospel, but they still remain terrified to follow the Lord. Yeah, there's flesh involved, you know, like I want to do what I want to do. That's some of it. But a lot of times there's just this terror, like, look at what the Lord wants me to do. Look at what he's leading me to do. Look at what he's putting in my heart, what he's asking me to do. And I am terrified of that. And the reason we're terrified so often, and I'll throw myself in there because there are so many times I'm like, oh, Lord, I sent you asking me to do this. And I'm scared of that. You know why we're scared of that? Because we've got the wrong idea about God so often. We think that he's just there like he's like, hey, there's this thing I want to ask you to do. It's just going to be terrible. It's just going to be terrible. <laughs> but, you know, you'll obey me, and uh, you know, I'll give you a gold star in heaven or something for it. But, like, it's going to be terrible. You know, and you're going to do this thing. You're going to volunteer your time. You know, you're going to sign up. You're going to help out in the youth ministry or something like that. And you're going to go up there, and those kids are going to hate you, and it is just going to be terrible, you know? But Jesus said things like this. He said, when you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, I mean, you fill in the blank. What, what do you think is going to happen? It's like, I fill in the blank. I think it's going to be terrible. That sounds terrible. Lose my life. That sounds bad. But he says, when you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you find it. You actually find it. Everything in the Christian life, counterintuitive. But when you know who God really is, you become less afraid, less afraid. You, you have fear of him in the sense of reverence, 
but you don't have fear of him in the sense of terror. And you begin to say more and more, you know, if the Lord really is asking me to do that, if he is really asking me to dip out of my you know, military career before I get to that 20-year mark and to start serving him before that you know, retirement age comes, it won't be terrible. The Lord will be faithful. He'll watch over my life. If he really asks me to go to that nation and to preach the gospel, you know, it might be hard, there might be difficulty, but it won't be terrible. He's going to go with me. He's going to stand with me. If I, if I really give my time and my energy, you know, they come up here and they do these announcements about Calvary Kids and it's growing and we need people to help out, you know, and so go through the process, get fingerprinted and get trained and stuff like that. And that just sounds terrible. <laughs> but if the Lord is with me, you know, I'm going to learn things, I'm going to grow. You see, so often we have the wrong vision of who the Lord is. And it's the cross of Jesus Christ that is supposed to rewire all of that. Like Mephibosheth with David, we're to be brought into the love of Christ. Mephibosheth, before this story began, he was away and hiding. Now he's included. Before this story began, he hated David. Now he realizes David has his best interests in mind. He loves David. He's thankful to David. He was dissatisfied, and now he's being satisfied by David. We must allow the Lord to be that for us in our own lives. And you might be here tonight, and you don't yet know Jesus. You have not yet believed in Jesus. And just like David wanted to bring Mephibosheth home, Jesus wants to bring you home. He wants to bring you into his family. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.